Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, I am recording this episode during what can only be described as a planetary crisis. COVID-19 is disrupting every aspect of our personal and our professional lives. It's thrown many internal communicators into the spotlight as our organisations and senior leaders turn to us to solve some unique and critically important challenges. My guest this week is someone who is no stranger to crisis communication. Amanda Coleman was the Director of Corporate Communication at Greater Manchester Police when on Monday, the 22nd of May, 2017, a suicide bomber detonated a homemade bomb inside Manchester Arena as families and friends were leaving a pop concert. 23 people died that day and 139 were wounded, more than half of them children. This was just one of many tragic incidents that Amanda has faced in her 20-plus year career, working on the inside with a range of police and civic leaders, helping them respond to some of the UK's biggest incidents and sustained reputational attacks. She says, being in the room day after day has taught me an enormous amount about leadership, resilience, character, and the value of planning and testing so that communications are as effective as they can be when people and processes are put to the test. Her new book, out this month, Crisis Communication Strategies, brings together all her knowledge and experience to provide a starting point for developing or revising your comms crisis plan. As you'll hear throughout our conversation, Amanda is unfailingly straight-talking. Her advice is clear, it's practical, and it's grounded in real-life experiences. So without further ado, listeners, it's my pleasure to bring you Amanda Coleman. I cannot think of a, a better time for your book to be coming out. It's called Crisis Communication Strategies, How to Prepare in Advance, Respond Effectively, and recover in full. I guess the first question is, what prompted you to write this book? It goes back about two years, really. My background, I worked in police communications and back in, well, coming up for three years, we dealt with the, the um, a terrorist attack at the Manchester Arena. And for me, that was a massive turning point in how I'd approach crisis communication. We'd, I mean, I dealt with uh, police uh, crisis work for the best part of 15 years at that point. But I think everything changed for me in how I saw crisis communication could develop, should develop as it went forward. And I spent a lot of time, as did, you know, some of my team, going out and talking to people um, about the experience we had and about the learning from that. And that was always, it was a really positive way of dealing with what was such a, such a difficult experience to feel as though you could share that learning and help other people to do a better job when they're faced with dealing with a crisis. So, so yes, yeah, so sort of that went so far. Obviously, there's only so many people you can go and talk to. And that's what started me thinking. I mean, I have to admit to I've always wanted to write a book. I mean, right. I, have, I have had a, a, a thing of, I mean, I was a journalist by trade originally. I love words. I love, you know, communication. That's why I, I still still am working in this area. So it just seemed sensible to think of perhaps what we could look at, I could look at bringing a, a crisis communication book, but an updated version, something that was more around the things that I think are really, really important and critical to doing effective crisis communication. And it started from there. So, so yeah, it's been a long you know, two years writing, rewriting, researching to actually get to this point. And now it, it's slightly odd to to be in the middle of the biggest crisis 
you know, emergency situation I think anybody's ever going to see potentially in our lifetimes or certainly for, for a long, long period of time, hopefully. And, you know, and it's coming out. I remember you speaking after the, the, the arena bombings at an IOIC event, and it was an incredibly moving presentation that you gave and immediately I wanted you on the podcast at that stage was it the raw emotion of what happened during that and after it that as you say really meant that that experience was different from other of the many other crises that you must have dealt with yeah yeah it it was it was I didn't realize probably up until even quite recently how affected I'd been by the whole experience um and you know my experience was was by no means as horrific as as lots of people's uh, uh, and you know uh, don't get me wrong but as a communicator you you, un- you have to know a lot about what you're dealing with and when you're dealing with something as traumatic and as horrific as that was there's a lot of detail that you have to process to really effectively do the communication job and the only other time I'd experienced that was some years, oh, something like 12 years ago when we had um, a chief constable who died, who was actually, he was our serving chief constable at the time and 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 died, which was, which was in a similar kind of traumatic experience for me personally to, to kind of go through. But I think the, the, the thing I, I should have realised was it was, on, on that occasion, it was probably something like six to 12 months before I'd really comprehended what had we'd been through. And it's the same, it was the same, um, really, I've been you know, quite openly, I've had some counselling and, and I've been to speak to, to people and really only recently think I've probably come to terms a little bit with, with what we went through. It was, it, it was just something that was so, um, it's just had a, such a massive impact mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, of uh, what, we what I went through and what a lot of people um who responded to it in different ways went through so it was it has been quite emotional talking about it I you know I want to always want to use to get something positive from that experience and for me trying to take a lot of the the positive communication aspects that that um I I felt came through dealing with the arena into um into the book and, and as part of kind of explaining managing a crisis uh, within the book. Mm, it's a fascinating book and I also love the fact that you, there's so many case studies in there as well so it just makes for for really interesting reading both from a kind of theoretical process point of view but also the stories that come out through the crisis that you research around the world as well and I, we'll come on to a, a few of those I think in this conversation. I mean you've written recently just putting I guess this crisis in context, you've written that we are living through one of the longest running crises for some years. I'm just wondering how, in your experience, this crisis compares to others that you've you've seen or others that you've researched for the book. There are some crises, there's some emergencies, some situations that are so vast that when you talk about a return to normal, there is no return to normal. This is going to be a new normal. And the only one that kind of, for me, I think springs to mind was after 9-11 because of the the sort of how, you know, globally um, that that the impact of that was, was so massive. And it changed lots of things. It changed loads of things around air travel and everything else. This is the same, you know, th- this is going to be a new normal. And the scale, the sheer scale and the impact of this, I think, is what it, it kind of um, outweighs everything else. It's nothing that we've ever experienced. And I mean, even to the point I was, I was uh, thinking at the weekend, I ended up blogging about it, that, that we're also, we're all personally dealing with it because it's impacted us all personally in some way or another, whether it's just because we're in lockdown or whether it's because we're homeschooling, whatever it is, but it will have had an impact. And as a communicator, you've also then got to do your job, which is process all the information and advise on it. And usually, if you were in a traumatic situation, you would they would you would be extracted from that, and mm. then you don't need to do the comms on this. We'll sort it out. With this, you can't because we're all dealing with it. So I think that's a really really difficult thing for people to to do because you've got to try and suppress and box off some of those feelings. Mm. Um, so it's really, really important uh, for me 
having been through what I've experienced over the years, to, that people don't box that off and never go back to it because you're right. going to have to deal with a lot of emotional baggage, for want of a better term, that that you've come from. Because at the end of the day, as I say, to do your job, you've almost got to distance yourself from some of the personal difficulties, experiences, fears, concerns, whatever it is as well. So I think that in itself is a huge, a huge um, change to any sort of traditional feeling about dealing with a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. We're thrown right into the midst of it along with everyone else and then got to do the comps around it. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Do the fundamentals of good crisis communication and good crisis management apply, do you think? Are Are there some common frameworks you can use or because of the duration of this crisis, then it's this is a planetary crisis, so it's so different from other ones. Uh, sort of, do you have to tear up the rule book? I've done a lot of soul searching, looking at the book and going, is everything I wrote still sensible now, given what's happened? But I think even more so, the, the keys for me were about making sure you've got plans and processes. Those are all really important. I think probably only now people are realising how important business continuity plans really were. But, you know, those, all those things are really important, but they have to be people-focused. And that, for me, is the fundamental element that you can't forget the people that are involved, whether they're the ones responding to the issue or whether they are the people who are affected by it. So for me, if if your approach isn't doing that now, then it will very quickly be be called out. Key things for any kind of crisis that are going to be, for any organisation, is going to be leadership. And we see it now. Really important. You can see really good leadership examples coming through. You can see poor ones. Within that is the humanity and empathy. And that's something else I've been kind of very focused on is that really where's the effective communication at the minute and it, and where should it be really when you look at having a people kind of focused approach and it's around humanity and empathy. It's really understanding what people are experiencing. So the fundamentals are, are more important now than, uh, than they ever were. And hopefully, you know, people are starting to see crisis communication, business continuity, risk management, all things which sound a bit tedious to a lot of people and, and you know, vulnerability audits, whatever it is, they are really important because as well as dealing with this, we never know as communicators where the next crisis might come. Mm. So you're already dealing with this, but there will be crisis within the lockdown. You've got to kind of factor all those elements into it as well. It's it's really clear that that is your overarching philosophy in the book. I think there's a line towards the end where you say traditional approaches to crisis communication focus too heavily on processes and reputation at the expense of the people affected. And you also write that crises are won or lost depending on how you treat the people affected. Uh, I just wonder, I mean, is that what you've seen go wrong do you think, is that what organisations often fail to do in a crisis, that they just forget about, as you say, that that human aspect? Businesses need to think differently. And I think more so going forward from, from experiences we're, we're living through now. At the heart of everything is people. You may have done a really effective response to a crisis, but if within that you've totally disregarded your customer base, your employees, the service users, whatever it is, then you're never going to be as effective as you should be. Now, you might survive, you know, if you were Amazon and you're so fast that people find it so convenient to use and everything else, you may find that you survive it. It's not a critical blow. But if you're a smaller business or, you know, if you're a business that's struggling anyway and you do a good response practically, but it's focused on protecting the reputation of the business, then, you know, you'll, you'll be found out because we struggle at the minute anyway with the with fake news and with rumours circulating. It's it's important to get a really good, honest, clear message out and be really open and transparent when you know, particularly if it's something that the business has has a culpability or a responsibility in relation to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you need to 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 be really really upfront and you know when people understand that. Uh, you know, people might not like it, but, you know, there's nothing worse than you being exposed for pushing ahead, doing something, disregarding the fact that so many people are affected by what's happened. So it's difficult because business leaders are put in that position because they are very good at running a business. 
So that's why for me, you know, communications, HR, there are certain functions that absolutely need to get their voices heard at a senior level and need to be able to speak the language of business. But effectively, as communicators with the mm. people, people, uh, you know, we're about words, we're about communication, about connecting things, we're about engagement. So it's an ideal opportunity, really, f- for us to take that forward and to make sure that that is well and truly embedded into what 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 we do. And it's especially important at this time, isn't it? Because I think the public, I mean, you know, every Thursday we're clapping for the NHS, but it's not just that, is it? We're suddenly very grateful for the people that are emptying our bins, serving on checkouts. I think the public's probably more interested than ever in how organisations are serving and protecting their front line, aren't they? So that's a big difference in this crisis. There's been a lot of things people have had to rethink. You know, there's lots of things that as you go through life, you take for granted or that you just don't even think about. And now I think, you know, that that has fundamentally changed because, you know, you, you do value the fact that somebody can, you know, deliver your parents the, the, that are in isolation their, you know, food order for the week or, you know, mm. the, the bins get collected that, mm. you know, it's, it's uh, that you've got people who work in care homes that do, you know, that are people who are putting themselves at risk, businesses that have neglected their employees, put them in a difficult position. It, you know, we're reading about it. We're hearing yes. about it. Yes, um, yes, yes. There is no public acceptance for that position. Everybody understands that all businesses are suffering, or most businesses are from, you know, that they're all going through difficult times, are all struggling to to look at what the future looks like and how they'll, you know, continue to function. But actually, you can't do, you can't be, you know, planning your future on on risking employees. There's a really helpful diagram in your book quite early on, and you show the relationship between the comms crisis plan and the organisational response plan. And that, for me, immediately I looked at that and thought, oh, so often I've seen comms kind of either sidelined or a sort of side support function. But you show that very differently. And I'm just wondering how communication teams can become what you show in that diagram, which is a central strategic force that integrates all those other operational aspects of a crisis. Because that's fundamentally a more strategic Mm. role for comms than perhaps we've seen in the past, let's put it that way. Yeah, and I I think I, I, well, I know from seeing some of the work that, that people are doing at the minute that there will be um, a huge amount of, of trust and confidence in communications teams that's being built on what they're delivering now and how they're dealing with with dealing with the, uh, with the virus. So it's about making sure that that doesn't disappear as right. things go on and things go more, I'm going to say business as usual, it's difficult to say business, but, but things go into another state of business that you you need to continually keep that position uh, you know for me the, the important way that you will get to that position of uh, trust and confidence and you know that it be that trusted advisor is that you understand the business you understand how the business operates you understand w- what it means to employees so it's a lot of what is not supposed to be supposedly not communications work that's important because if you can't understand what makes the business tick how it does X, Y, and Z, and what that means for the CEO or the whoever's in charge, then I think you're never going to be able to speak the language that they they need you to. Um, mm-hmm. And like I say, kind of bridge that. We know what we want, you know, the communications aspect should be like, and we know where we need it. And we've got the the people on a senior position and you've got to be able to bridge that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so for me, as I say, it's about that, you know, understanding then can build trust and, and confidence you know you've got to know does it make money is it losing money how's the you know how do people get paid what's the front line it, it's all that you know, you know you kind of need to absorb that information to be able mm. to then um make the the you know to, to concrete that position um mm. and and then it's you know and as you get to that point it's a it's a long road you know it can be a long road or it can be a, a tough road but then you can continue to build on that mm. but yes but, but it can't, you can't ever go to the point where, oh, that's fine, we're done and, and we've got this position and we're comfortable. You've got to continue to show that frontline support, delivery, understanding, 
you know advice etc so you know it's it's it is definitely not a, a long road that and to keep that position is going to be um challenging but you know certainly doable definitely yeah yeah you you have um some sections up front all about planning and as I was reading them I was thinking to myself oh, I bet there are so many comms functions that are wishing they did more planning for crisis but then I sort of stopped myself and thought, do you know what? It's never too late to learn how to improve your response to the next crisis. So let's dive into planning just a little bit. I was wondering what are some of the common mistakes comms teams make at that early planning stage? And one of the lines that stuck out for me is that you said, don't make your crisis comms plan too detailed. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. I wonder why that is. So, yeah, I just wonder if you could yeah. talk a little bit about planning. Everybody, no matter what level of planning you've done, would have said we should have done more planning. You know, we've done all kinds of planning um, from, from a kind of police background, terrorist attack stuff. And we still could have done more. You know, they, right. there, there was so much. You know, so you, you're always going to wish you could have done more planning. Um, but I think the, 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 the main kind of problems I think are people underestimate the scale of the demand you underestimate the scale of the potential to disrupt the business and we're seeing that now and the levels of resourcing that be required and when you've got something like we're dealing with in terms of coronavirus it's going to go on for a long period of time and I've said a few times to people it's a, a marathon not a sprint the problem you've got is you've run out of people very quickly they're exhausted they need time off you're doing a whole range of different tasks and jobs and functions and things you've never done before. Potentially, you may have lost some staff through furlough, whatever, uh, you know, as well. Within that as well, you've got having a plan that you don't tell anybody about, which is another <laughs> very common problem, which I think people have, is that you you do a lot of planning as a comms team with your function. And, and then that's why the connectivity across the business was so important for me to put within the book is that, you know, it's all right, you're having a plan. It's really important you have a plan. And it's really important that plan then has a, a fit within what the organisational plan is and that everybody knows what everybody's bit of the plan looks like. And in terms of not making it too detailed, I think yeah, the, the, the key for me is, you know, I've spoken to lots of people over over the years who go, yeah, well, you know, I can't write different plans for, for everything. You know, I can't have a crisis plan for this and a crisis plan for that. And, you know, and I've worked in um, police forces where, you know, there's literally a room yeah, it's all up. This is going back to the time, kind of pre heavily computerization, where there was loads of files, and each of the files had a different name on it because it was very tactical plans for like every conceivable problem that could occur. Well, you can't do that because you know, it, you know, it's just not uh, feasible. However, what you do is you have good fundamentals, good basics, good frame, framework, good foundations, which could be applied to anything, and then when something happens. Your, your bit of it is, right, how is how is this different? What is the elements of this that we need to then factor in to, to make this plan work for now and the crisis that we're, we're dealing with now? So so that's why I say, you know, for me, it's about keeping it um, broad as a, as a kind of framework, as a foundation, and then you add to it and then you build on it. That makes sense. And it also means that creating that framework doesn't feel too scary because, as you say, I haven't got to cover off every potential crisis, not just the ones on the risk register, but all the ones that I can't even imagine might come up. You know, and then it just becomes a, just a daunting task, I guess. Are there some elements of that framework that often get forgotten or are there certain aspects of that of that crisis plan that are potentially more always more difficult, do you think? Things that get forgotten, making sure employees get enough information, regular information, and get it first, hopefully. I think the whole well-being element, I mean, I put a whole chapter in the book about well-being. Fundamentally for me, I suppose, in the book, there's lots of potential to have a plan that just does not understand the the people that are affected, mm, the consequences mm. of an incident. For me, you know, there was a, there's a whole chapter about community impacts and consequence management and, you know, managing and de- dealing with affected people. That Those for me, I think, uh, where I said before, you know, are the bits that you potentially can, you know, can um, have an effective response or you can have a less effective response or you could even, you know, lose uh, confidence and trust in the organisation by failing to, to do those elements. So, mm. I think, you know, and, it, and it, as I say, it's why I wanted to write the book was 
Um, I read, I've read a lot on crisis communication that's very structured and very focused on the structure. And rightly so, and when the plans and the policies and, and all those elements that you really do need to have, but it just wasn't rooted in anything around dealing with people and, and mm. making that, you know, such a central part. So I do think that, you know, hopefully that might be something people take away to, to think about for mm. future. One of the important things that comes through in the case studies that you write about is the importance of acting quickly and also the importance of being open and transparent. But I know that comms people often find this difficult to do in practice. There's lots of breaks that are put on us for wanting to to move at speed or to sort of really be open with what's going on. I just wondered what are some of the techniques, the tactics you might have deployed over the years to act swiftly and to communicate in an open manner? This is all work that you have to do when you're not in a crisis. You know, this right. is building up trust and confidence within comms function, within the team, so that you get to a point where you're not seeking approval for everything that happens. And I think that's about an education process with people in senior positions in an, in an organisation, because you know, we haven't got the luxury of time anyway, really, with social media and the speed of news outlets now. We just can't keep going. Can I have 10 people to authorise this, please? There are certain things that you will need to do that for, quite rightly. But you need to be able to do some things without going for approvals. So that's about having that plan, which states when there's something happens, we will have a holding statement, which we will put out, keep it broad, and get that signed off and get that agreed. As we go into it, if there's people that have been injured, if you know, if there's you know, financial implications, I am going to need to make sure that's all agreed. However, this is the approach, this is what we want to do. So it's building that confidence and you know, and being really honest because you can't function properly and do what you need to do if you have got 10 different people to get a statement to authorize a statement. So, you know, I think. Even to the point of in day-to-day -day business, it just becomes more exacerbated and more kind of um, under and focus for a crisis. But, you know, really, should we be getting 10 people to sign off, you know, something we're going to say to the media? Mm. Or should we have a position where it's one or two people? Mm. Uh, I would say one, really, but uh, yeah. one or possibly two. And some of this is about stakeholder mapping, understanding the risk register, having fed into the business continuity plan. So it's all things that, I think often as communicators feel a bit dull and sometimes a bit clumsy and not really part of what we should be doing or what we want to do. And people are busy. And, you know, I've been through it years and years of, of seeing cuts and pressure on teams. So to be honest, you focus on, on what you need to do that's kind of, you know, urgent. But actually, some of this, I say, is, is so important to be to put you not only in readiness for a crisis, but to put you in the position you you, you need to be to fu function more effectively within an organisation. And I guess one of the reasons that sort of acting swiftly and being fairly open and transparent is so important today is that there's so many ways that everyone who's involved in a crisis can start a conversation about it, can't they? You can be somebody affected, you can be a commentator on it, you can be an advocate of the brand or maybe someone that doesn't support the brand and then you can jump on social media and have a view. So I guess that's another really important reason why you just need to have your party line, I suppose, out there straight away. Yeah, totally. It's, it is. It's for, it, you know, the, the speed is, is really important and I think it's important anyway, but it becomes even more important when you're dealing with a crisis because if you aren't on the front foot, if you aren't being really positive, going out and saying, this is what we know, this is what we can say, this is the position, then you're going to lose it very quickly because people are going to have overtaken you. Your position will just become lost within, uh, you know, a sea of other things. And, you know, when honesty and, and transparency, they just should be critical to everything we do anyway, really. But even even more so when you're dealing with a crisis and, you know, like there's, you know, there's lots of times you're dealing with something and for, you can't tell people everything. We understand that. When I was working with the police, you can't give the background to an investigation and what's going on behind the scenes. But there are other things you can do. And that's why you say, you know, and I've said before, it's about understanding the business because there's other things you can do. You can talk about what the responses are in this level and how it was working here and what the employees are doing. So there's lots of other positive aspects that you can talk about. I think it's just that 
really having having that honest conversation and building that as it goes forward. At this moment in time, we can't definitively know what's happened, you know, but mm. as soon as we do, we will tell you. It's it's hard to gain, it's easily lost. You know, you you keep plugging away, we'll be with a trusted voice, we'll tell you what's happening, that we know, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. The minute you don't know, it goes very quickly. So it, it's a long road to to gain that confidence and that trust from from people. But if you know the, this is important for us to really explain to to chief execs and other people that if you try and and stop that at some point, you you will have a massive impact. You know you can't. You're not going to then. Oh, we didn't tell you about that, but we're back on track now. It's not going to work because you, you're literally back to square one. It's like, I suppose, snakes and ladders and you go well down that ladder and back to the, the starting point. As you say, trust so easily lost, isn't it? Especially, I guess, in a crisis when emotions are heightened as well. I noticed that your book's got a whole chapter on the importance of the employee audience, uh, a title in chaptered How Employees Should Come First. I just wondered if you could explain why the internal audience is so important. We've touched on it a bit about this crisis and how it's affecting employees. But in general, why is that internal audience so important? If you think of a, of a you know, a supermarket or you think of well, any business, really, every person that works for them will be potentially interacting with the public. They're either an advocate, they're either fully informed and they can build that confidence. They can help people. They can help the situation you're dealing with or they can cause confusion and cause concern, can spark a, a run on toilet rolls again. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. All those things could happen so easily. So, you know, absolutely, your employees need to be your there first. You know, they need to know what's happening, what they can say, what they potentially need to say. It's be really honest. We can't tell you X, Y, and Z, but this is the position. And this is what, you know, and go to these channels for more information. And this is, you know, they are so fundamental to the success of it. And it's about, for me, why, why do the employees need to, to be at your, your forefront? Well, we've seen it now, really. I think, you know, writ large with dealing mm-hmm. with this, the ability for them, you know, to support the communication, to not detract from things, and also understanding the psychological personal impacts, you know, with the staff, with the furloughed, and, uh, you know, we've got staff working remotely. You've got to be able to connect with them um, and still keep them as part of the business. Ultimately, and, you know, internal communications people will will know this. You, if you don't engage your workforce anyway, you're going to lose them because mm. nobody's going to work for an organisation. Nobody's going to give their best for an organisation that they feel isn't interested in them, doesn't value what they've got to say, doesn't value their import. So, you know, fundamentally, you'll become an employer of choice or not and you'll retain good staff or not of how you value people and communication, the kind of internal communication, employee engagement, that audience, that approach has got to be critical. If you don't put them first, if you don't make sure that they really understand what's going on, then, you know, you're potentially going to get a mismatch with what you say internally and what's going out externally. And that will be very quickly become highlighted and become obvious because quite, you know, people have got the ability to say what they want to about working for an organisation. You'll get found out, I guess, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. You wrote a blog recently about the importance of what you called the hot debrief. And it's interesting because I've heard this a lot recently that we often miss the opportunity to go through that debriefing process. And then as a result, we don't learn the things we could have learned from a situation. I just wonder, how does a, for someone who might not have done one before, how does a hot debrief actually work in practice? It's very much a sort of police military approach, really, is that if you think back to day one of, of lockdown, can you remember it in detail? In enough mm. detail to say, that was a good bit of my day. That was a bad bit of my day. You can't. Things move on. We don't retain all that information. So we're losing a lot of information as the days go on. So realistically, I'd like to do a deep, hot debrief at the end of every day, really, or, you know, mm. looking at every day. Time-wise, I know that's that's unlikely. But, reali- you know, realistically, two weeks in, four weeks in, you should look back. And, and it's really simple, to be, to be honest, because, you know, debriefs can get complicated and quite rightly, at the end, towards the end of a, a crisis, you would have a 
you know, should have a big, huge scale debrief that looks at all aspects of what the organisation did and comms would be part of that. But if you, for, as a comms function, really, you're talking about get people together who were significantly involved in what happened over that last week, that last two weeks, whatever it is, and ask them each to bring five things that they felt worked well, five things that they felt could have been better, and then suggestions for taking forward. You just go around the people. So one person will say, well, you know, we didn't have the right IT because X, Y, Z didn't work. But that, so you park that, and then the next person, if they've got that on their list, then that's knocked off. So you can actually speed up the process, really, because there will be commonality. So it's not that everybody has to say all five all the way through. Keep it tight. Keep it focused on time. It's not a massive discussion. It's literally mm-hmm. just let's part these things. If there's urgent stuff that we need to look at, then we can look at it because it'll have come out. And if there's things that are common, you know, in terms of going forward, then what we can do is we can build on that and we can look at what we need to do to change the plan, to look at how we do remote working, whatever the the, the issue is. So for me, it's it should be a relatively straightforward thing. We're doing some work with the CIPR local public service group to try and do a, a sort of short two, three page guide to practically how to do it. Because for me, it's a kind of second nature. I think for anybody who's worked as sort of military, it's probably second nature. But I know for a lot of people, it's it's not thing that they've been through. So it might feel a bit alien, but it, it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And you, you keep it strictly to time because people, comms people like to talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> How true. How true. <laughs> so I think it's just about keeping it focused. So yeah, if IT comes up with the first person, then person two, three, four, five, they, they're not expected to do it. And you could easily do it remotely, you know, email us five things at this five and then somebody, you know, who's who's leading can look at all those aspects and take look at what they take forward. Ultimately, it's about making sure that at some point you're improving what you do, you're improving the plan, you're improving the processes, you're improving the focus of what you do and you and you're giving staff an opportunity to explain if you've missed some of the niggles that they're dealing with that are causing them some problems. Yes, absolutely. And I remember listening to a, a chap who was the kind of squadron commander or whatever you would call it of the Red Arrows. And he was saying in the hot debrief, it's really important that as the leader, I make sure I'm the first to put my hand up and say, I could have done that slightly better. You know, I might have been an inch out with my wing there or something like that. I know they go into great detail. So that importance of the whoever the leader is in the room being very open about potentially where they could have done better is quite important to set the tone, I'm guessing. Thing. Yeah, totally. It, that's why I say it's, it's not a blame thing. It's not, you know, no. it's, it's very important not to say really even going to what went wrong. It's what could have been done differently. What could have right. been done better? You know, this is about learning. And I was really upfront from from the start of dealing with the arena in that I'm un, I misunderstood the resource and implications. Mm-hmm. I, I did, you know, I thought we were coping better than we were doing when we were on day sort of three. You know, and I and I could have kicked that in straight away. I didn't need anybody to say that we needed extra help quicker than we got it because I know we needed extra help quicker than we got it. And I said that. It's the same with trying to encourage people to go and seek sort of help if they've got any kind of uh, psychological or well-being issues after dealing with something. You need to be really honest about what you're experienced and what you've, you know, what you're going through. Now, you wrote recently that while broadcast focused communication is acceptable in the eye of the storm, it is not a sustainable position if you are to get the best from your activity in the future. And uh, something that's occurred to me recently is at some point in this crisis, we've got to get into sort of listening mode. I'm just wondering what you've learned in your career about the importance of, of listening in a crisis. It's not just in a crisis, it's all, it's all the time. We really should be listening to, to the mood, the tone, to what's being on what's being said, to what people are feeling, to how they're understanding what, what we're dealing with. And you know, the risk is you become disconnected because you're putting things out, you're broadcasting lots of stuff, but actually it's not landing, it's not relevant, it's, you know, and and you're very quickly appear out of touch with what's happening. And a lot of it links to diversity because the places that we are connecting with, very diverse, you can't understand all of it from your position I can't understand all of it from my position so why you've got to be able to listen it's why you've got to have the networks in place to be able to support you to get that information to understand what people are thinking to understand what they're saying about where where they are with whatever's happening and broadcast it's fine when you need to say stay at home 
But that's not a sustainable position to keep just telling people to, to do this or don't do that. You've got to get to a position where you understand what's, what people are saying about how they're feeling about things. And then you can start to, to really get back to where we all want to be, which is engagement and, and really strong listening conversation with people, because that's where you get the maximum benefit for any communication. Let's turn now to the role that leaders can and should be playing in a crisis. You included a powerful case study in your book of how New Zealand's Prime Minister responded in the wake of the Christchurch shootings. And she's also come up online so many times now because people are saying that is how you respond in this crisis. The way that she's responding now is sort of being put on the pedestal as as the way all leaders should be responding visibly, with humility. I'm just wondering, what's your observations about CEOs in crisis and how do you forge that bond and that connection with them? These are things that hopefully you'll have been building with the trust and confidence. So in the when you're not in the middle of a crisis that you can then um, benefit from when, when you, you're in that sort of cauldron of, of activity caused by a crisis. I mean, I'm a bit, I have to say, I think I'm becoming a bit of a fan um, of Jacinda Ardern. She was, I think she showed such hum, humanity and empathy when she was dealing with the Christchurch shootings. And she took it to another level. You know, she went to, she offered to go to the funerals. She, you know, she just, it just was those little things that just showed this wasn't me saying the right things as a, a person in charge of this uh, situation and, and leading the country. This is me really connecting and really understanding what it means to you. And and yeah, I mean, why is she featuring a lot now is because she's doing the same thing now. You know, she, she did a podcast. I think she was actually interviewing somebody about what it meant to the business, which I caught this morning. You know, she has, um, did a, a questions and answers from home after she put her kids to bed. She's a real person. Yeah, you know, she's got the gravitas to be stood there saying we're going on a lockdown and this is what it's going to look like. And exactly like, you know, other leaders have around, around the world for different reasons and for different approaches. But she brings such humanity and empathy. The only two things I think that I think make it stand out is that you you actually believe that she understands what you're going through Mm. and that she's thought about it. And, that you know, yes, she's making decisions that are going to impact on, on everybody. And that includes her because she's, you know, she's trying to do stuff at home and, and everything else, you know, and all, all, all the things that we've got to deal with. So, yeah, uh, you've got to say it, mean it and live it. And I think that's sometimes with, we see from leaders, they don't necessarily have all those. They might say it and not mean it. They might say it and mean it, but not live it. And, you know, mm-hmm. and that and that becomes really critical. So whoever's in charge, have got to keep in touch with the workforce. As we've said, you know, they've got to be able to connect with customers, with service users, with communities. It, it's, a, it's a tough old job. I say it's why I did spend quite a bit of time looking at leadership in a crisis within the book. And I looked at a lot of case studies. Mm, It's so interesting, isn't it? I was doing I was deconstructing CEOs videos to employees. And it's so interesting how some of them think by removing their tie and sitting on the edge of the desk, they're somehow connecting. And then you've got, I think he's called Arnie Sorensen, but he's the chief executive of Marriott, who just talks to camera, almost breaks down at the end. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it's all, it's, it's humble. He's being honest. You can see it's the raw emotion. I wonder whether we are going to see a new type of leadership emerge from this crisis, do you think? Could we, or am I just being very hopeful here, that we'll lose the gloss and actually leaders will say, as you say, mean it and live it going forward? I think it's authenticity, isn't it? It's authenticity Mm. that's so key. And, you know, you can't, you you can try and fake stuff, but actually you, you get found out. It's weird to, to talk now about the future because I think there are lots of things that could easily change in the future. The way we look at communications and how we model it, I think will change in the future. I think should change in the future because I don't think it's going to be sustainable to, to run in the way we're running and you know have been running. And I think the same with leadership. We are going to see emerging new, I think it was there anyway. One of the things I, I've spent a bit of time probably last year 18 months is you don't have to be really slick on the media anymore what you need to be is really authentic so if you're come across honest authentic 
the fact that you're not the best media performer, people will forgive you. Yes. We saw, we've seen that. I've seen that with loads of police officers. They might not be the, the best in terms of media performer, but they are really honest about what they're feeling about things and that, yeah, it's had an impact on them. Whilst it's probably been there in a little small way, um, I think we're going to see more of that going forward. I think it's going to be really critical on the back of, of what we've all experienced. You said the model of comms is going to change or probably will change from this crisis. We're just digging into that a little bit. What is it about the model that you think it is going to change? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm in, in the process of kind of mapping through and thinking through at the minute, because I think it's difficult to say it's going to look like this going forward. However, what we've seen is we went from going about our daily lives to suddenly we're all working from home and in lockdown, literally overnight. So what's obvious going forward as businesses are starting to look at different ways of working so that, you know, they may have worked in a particular way that they can't do now and they've got to find other ways to survive. We've got to be able to move that quickly within communication. So we've got to be able to adapt, flex, change, restructure. Otherwise, you know, we won't be able to survive. But there's definitely a work in progress. Let's turn to those quick if we may. So first off, what would most surprise people about Amanda Coleman? I think it's probably that um, people know I like animals and I've got some animals as my kind of sanity sometimes when I have a difficult day, but actually I'm trained to do animal Reiki. Oh my goodness me. So Reiki is, uh, no, you have to explain to me, I'm not even going to guess. <laughs> but Reiki is all about channeling energy and, and it's holistic therapy. You can do it with, with animals. So I, I, I've done it quite successfully on horses and dogs so it calms them down does it yeah it, it's it helps healing it promotes well-being wow and yeah but so not many have, people know that no I bet they don't <laughs> so do you have a little menagerie at home of different animals I, I have had at the moment I have a, a horse and a rabbit a house rabbit we've had gerbils and all kinds of rodenty creatures over the time <laughs> as well I shouldn't say I will say this at the front of the book where you get a chance to write uh, you know you kind of thank you bits yes. um, it, it says um, Edward Digger and Albert Edward and Digger are the horse and the rabbit and Albert was bless him um, and he died about eight months ago was my little gerbil and they were my supporters when I was writing the book. <laughs> what one book journal or website it really doesn't matter what but what should all communicators read? What I love are, are blogs and podcasts and I love dipping into all kinds of blogs and podcasts. So I, I mean, uh, you know, Stephen Waddington's one, I love reading his thoughts on stuff. I don't always agree with him, um, but I love reading his thoughts on stuff. Uh, Rachel Miller, Comms 2.0, look, there's, there's a whole range. And I think I just, I love being able to dip into to podcasts and, and blogs. Just on Stephen Waddington, he is a very interesting mind and he did appear in an earlier podcast on this show. So people can dig that out. Again, we'll put the link in the show notes. So what would you do tomorrow if you knew you couldn't fail? I'm not going to choose anything work related because I think I'm quite... Yeah, quite robust. So I generally will give it a go. And if it fails, uh, you know, well, I'll carry on. The thing I would try was skydiving. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's a bit of me that goes, I'm not throwing myself out of a plane unless I know I'm definitely going to be able to land properly. So if somebody could say to me, you're definitely going to be able to land and survive and walk away, I would go and do it. But I'm not convinced that that, that would happen. So it, no, no don't blame me. I, I wouldn't even like to go in the plane as, as often as people might know. I, that, that would be my first problem. Anyway, when you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? Jacinda Ardern for me, I think at the moment is is just just on a on a different level. I think um, it's difficult to go back to the past, and, and I, um, I could muse on that, but because I think the time was so different that it's difficult to then judge them against today's standards. They were probably really effective at the time, but actually when you, you apply different kind of thought processes to it that we have at the minute, then it wouldn't necessarily always seem that way. So that's why I think I'll just keep it current and go with uh, Jacinda, bit of a fan. And then finally, Amanda, you get a big billboard, sort of metaphorical billboard for millions to see. So you can get a message out there. What are you going to put on that billboard? It's really hard to think what you'd put. And 
And it might sound a bit trite, but for me, it would be be kind. Being kind to yourself, particularly like with everything we're going through at the minute, you know, we need to be a bit kind to ourselves. You, no, we don't need to learn a new language. We don't need to suddenly become the world's best baker because we've got a bit of time at home. You, we could just be a bit kind and do some good things and help some people along the way and get through what's a really difficult, stressful time. For communicators, it would be be kind to, you know, think about the people that are reading what you say, you know, whether that's employees or whether that's people who are affected or whether that's, you know, people out, out living in communities. Just think about how they will view it. I've been lucky enough in the past to go and spend time at community meetings and they are so important. And I just wish the type people had a lot more time to be able to do some of those things because I think it would really help them in developing um, their approaches to, to what they're doing. Mm, as you say, that listening piece and developing understanding and empathy. Amanda, thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. No, thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms podcast. To find out more about the books and the other resources that Amanda and I mentioned, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly internal comms newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of IC. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a shout out on social media, or perhaps you'd like to blog about the show. It would also be great if you could make us more discoverable for other IC pros out there. And I'm told the very best way of doing this is to simply rate the show on iTunes. Now, the Internal Comms podcast will be with you throughout this crisis. Next up, we have a trailblazing chief executive. Adrienne Kelby is the chief executive for the Office of Nuclear Regulation. She's a passionate and articulate leader who is really shaking up her entire sector and profession. So you might want to hit the subscribe button today. All that remains, lovely listeners, is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms podcast. And until we meet again, stay safe, stay well, and remember, it's what's inside that counts. <laughs>